Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. It is good to see all of you. We're going to, um, we are in Module 3, Session 4, and if you are um, following the syllabus, in the syllabus it shows that we're doing lectures on uh, evangelism. I'm going to do all those at the end. We'll do all those uh, all together. So where is everybody today? Is this a holiday I didn't know about? Uh, so we're going to look at the book of Daniel today, which I'm very excited about. And, and again, for those of you who are not um, doing the assignments for Bible Training Institute, this is going to be so much more useful for you if you read ahead. That's uh, a little more useful, but um, you'll still get something. But it's, it's more useful because I'm, I am talking to you as if you've read the book. So that's uh, a little easier for me. Well, let's pray and then we're going to go through the book of Daniel here. Thank you, Lord, for this Lord's Day. Thank you that this is the day that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead. And we look forward to seeing him face to face someday. Until that day, Lord, you have given us the bride of Christ, one another, that as we love one another, fellowship with one another, serve alongside each other, and certainly fulfill our mission to proclaim Christ in the world, uh, that we are enjoying you through your body and certainly through your word. You are the Word of God. You have given us the Word of God. And we pray that this day, Lord, Your Word would so fill us up with Christ, so fill us up with joy, with knowledge of our God, that we would be empowered, emboldened, and enabled to serve You all the more effectively in the coming days. As our world grows darker, may our light grow brighter. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Book of Daniel. It's one of those, uh, we, you know, we just a couple of weeks ago went through the whole book of Revelation and uh, you really can't understand the book of Revelation without the book of Daniel. So uh, it, the traditions in the past that have said that, uh, that, well, we're a New Testament church, we don't really worry about the Old Testament. Well, have trouble with the New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament because the, uh, it, trying to start with New Testament only is kind of like starting a book in the middle. You, you really uh, don't have the full story. So Daniel is very important for us. It's very in uh, times oriented, but it also has some other important themes for us. So let's just do some of the basics to start with, as we always do. And I, and I think my slides today are fairly thin, so uh, I apologize for that. Uh, unlike other books, the title of the book of Daniel has never been disputed, so it's just Daniel, and that, that makes it very easy. Uh, the date of the book, everything in the book would begin 605 B.C. That was the, uh, the first, and just to review this history a little bit, the first of three invasions by Babylon into the southern kingdom of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. 605 was the first one. Uh, Daniel and many other uh, uh, noble young men, smart young men, were taken away to Babylon and per uh, the Babylonian Empire's uh, kind of policy, it wasn't to imprison them or enslave them. It was actually to mix them into the culture. And Daniel and his friends were actually intended to go immediately to high levels of the government. Um, to, so how do, you, how do you best conquer a nation? You conquer a nation by taking the best of their people and making them part of your ruling authority. And because now you've inculcated them into your empire. Um, no, no empire ever became a great empire by simply enslaving all the peoples they conquered. 
why is it that these empires like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt were able to spread so much land out and maintain control? Because they didn't try to dominate. They tried to overtake. They tried to inculcate culture. Um, So when Daniel was taken away in 605, he was immediately put into training as a future leader in Babylon. And so then we take the book all the way to 536 B.C., which is the date of uh, the writing of chapter 10. And so what we see in Daniel is we see him as a very young man, and then we see him as a very old man. His greatest exploits seem to be in his early years and in his later years. Uh, Everything that happens in between is him just living uh, his life in the Babylonian Empire. The setting There are massive geopolitical events happening in the Middle East at this time. Assyria had been dominating uh, the entire Middle East, which was basically the known world at the time, but they're beginning to fade. Uh, God's judgment on Nineveh came in uh, the, the late 7th century. Assyria collapsed. Babylon seized control. Babylonia, rather, seized control of all the city states of Assyria. And then now Babylonia, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, they're in control. Uh, But then his reign ends in 562, 16 years after he took Jerusalem in 587 or 586 or so. And so now all of a sudden, uh, Daniel finds himself in the middle of massive world events. And we even see in Daniel chapter 5, he was there on the premises and he predicted to the the king at the time that your kingdom will be ripped from you this night. And the Medo-Persian Empire at that very moment was uh, was making their way into the city of Babylon to uh, actually take over the the empire. And so, boy, talk about being right there when history's happening. Uh, He was right in the middle of all of it. So what are some of the important theological themes and historical themes? Not necessarily in order of importance, but I think this is important for us um, because the whole book really kind of bleeds this. The sovereignty of God over the kingdoms of man. This is encouraging to us, isn't it? Because, you know, we used to sing songs like Proud to be an American, and we're not so so prone to sing that all the time, uh, uh, especially since our own you know governing authorities seem to hate America. So you wonder what's God doing in kingdoms. Um, And no, by the way, the book of Daniel is not about America. That has been a popular position in the past. Uh, I don't know where where people got that. That's an arrogant position. Um, I hate to tell you this, but the United States of America is found nowhere in the eschatological future. So I don't know what to tell you. I'd feel safer being an Egyptian right now because they're mentioned in Isaiah as being a major part of the millennial kingdom. Another topic for another day. But he's sovereign over the kingdoms of man, and that comforts us because nothing that happens in the world is without God's control. The early passages about the sovereignty of God, they really prepare you to prepare the reader to believe the prophecies about the future contained in the second half. So in other words, if you tell your child, I'm going to give you $1,000 and here's a dollar to prove that I can do it. The first half of Daniel is kind of that proof. So you have Daniel 5 that I just mentioned, uh, Belshazzar and the writing on the wall that this kingdom is taken from you this night. 
That proves that God can do this. Then you have Daniel in the lion's den, chapter 6. You have this, this demonstration that the word of Daniel is true, that the God of Daniel is true. And so that prepares you then for all the passages coming up in chapters uh, you know, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in there that not only deal with the immediate future in the, in the ancient uh, Near East, but also with the far future that hasn't yet happened. And that prepares us to believe and to understand. There's no way in Scripture, there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us God hasn't fulfilled anything yet, just believe Him anyway. There's so many fulfilled prophecies right in Scripture that it gives us the faith to believe that all the rest will be fulfilled as well. But what's our key passage about the sovereignty of God? Well, we see this illustrated in Daniel 3, 17 and 18. You remember this, the the young men, Daniel's friends, who are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, and they answer this, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, God is in control. Maybe he'll deliver us. Maybe he won't. It doesn't matter. We'll follow what he says. And we'll be okay with that. Uh, that little passage, by the way, is a great lesson for how to walk through life accepting what the Lord gives. Sure, he's powerful enough to rescue me from everything. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with his choice. So the sovereignty of God over the kingdoms of man. And this becomes very important when uh, two major sources in the New Testament start quoting Daniel like crazy. The Lord Jesus Christ, his, the majority of his teaching on the end times, not the majority, but a great portion of it, was based in the book of Daniel. He is basically teaching what Daniel already said. And then we have, of course, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. You cannot understand Revelation without understanding Daniel. The two go hand in hand. Then you have the, the uh, theme of Israel as a remnant subject to the Gentiles, chapter 1 and chapter 9. They've been taken captive as a people. And I want to make a, just a couple of observations about this. Never in all the time that Israel was in, uh, in Babylon was there ever a known plot to overthrow the kingdom. They just simply accepted what God gave them. In fact, uh, God told them elsewhere in Scripture that when you're taken into captivity, build houses, have babies, settle in, be a good citizen. Ask for blessing on the cities that you're in. In other words, just be where you are and be godly wherever you are. And so they're subject to the Gentiles for a time. They're even forced, some of them, to accept pagan names. We know the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are Babylonian names. Um, they're, they're Israelite names were their given names. Why do you do this? Well, you do this because it's a method of, of domineering and dominating uh, somebody. And so they're basically uh, the faithful. And remember, w when you're talking about Israel in the Old Testament, there's always there's two Israels. There's the Israel that is ethnic, all the people descended from Abraham. Then there's the Israel that Romans 9, 6 talks about. Not all who are of Israel are actual Israel. Those who are truly faithful, who have a genuine, internal, repentant faith in God. 
and who are saved by faith just the same as we are, except that their payment for their sins will be forthcoming in the future. Ours is in the past in Christ. And so it's important to understand that when we say Israel in captivity, there's all the ethnic Israel, but then there's the faithful. So what were the faithful doing? The, the Daniels and the Shadrachs and Meshachs and the Bednegos. Well, yes, they're being domineered. They're having to accept these pagan names. But they maintain their identity as faithful believers in Yahweh. They maintain their conduct while at the same time submitting to and adapting to the culture. They didn't submit to the sinful parts of the culture. How do we know this? Daniel chapter 6. An edict is made that you can't pray to anybody except the king. And Daniel said, forget that. I'm praying to my God. And in fact, did so in a way that kind of said, hey, everybody, I'm praying to my God. He did it in, open, in openness and uh, without any hidden idea here. Um, and by the way, it's often said, uh, well, persecution is coming, so the church should find places to meet that are secret. I have just the opposite. I think we ought to be right in the middle of everything and, and show the world that we worship Christ. Um, why go into hiding until people start dying? Okay, when that happens, then maybe we have to do that. But I'm not going into hiding until they make us. Um, there, there's no reason to do that. So these men maintain their identity. They maintain their conduct. Uh, they're examples of how to live godly lives in an ungodly culture. What, what was their basic MO? What was their... Uh, mode of operating they submitted where they could but when their consciences were at stake they made a stand but even then they were respectful they they made an appeal not an uprising there's no secret meetings with daniel uh, shadrach meshach and abednego saying we got to take over there, there's there's no political solution for them all the solution for them was waiting upon the lord and waiting for the lord to do his thing even in uh, Jeremiah 28, when God is preparing Israel to go into exile, he, he tells them, pray for the peace of the nation that is going to exile you. So that's a good example for us, isn't it? Um, uh, the best thing that a Christian can do is to love your country. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be good citizens. Um, we don't submit to ungodly laws or mandates or edicts, but we submit everywhere we can. Um, you know, if you get, uh, if, if you break a little minor law, you don't cry out, uh, well, I don't submit to Caesar, I submit to Christ. We're not talking about little things like that. When we're talking about submitting um, when you can, but when your consciences are at stake, then you don't. We're talking about the big things. We're talking about when we're told how to worship, when to worship, where to worship. At that point, we respectfully draw a line and say, none of your business. We will do what Christ tells us to do. And Daniel uh, chapter 6, by one article I read, has been the most preached passage over the past 18 months in, in Reformed churches around the world. Because COVID has been used as an excuse for the government to stick their fingers into the life of the church. And so Daniel 6 is like blowing up on, on, uh, all over the place, which is fabulous, uh, which is how it ought to be. So they're, they're subject to the Gentiles, kind of like us, right? We, you know, can you imagine what it would like if, be like if all of a sudden our you know, 400 and something legislators uh, in, the, in Washington were all reformed Bible-believing Christians? What would that be like? 
Well, that would be called the millennial kingdom of Christ. So you would give up on that. That would be amazing, but that's not the case. So we submit to Christ. You pray for uh, effectiveness in your sphere of influence until Christ returns. So they are, in that sense, a very good example. Then you have the theme of the progression of Gentile kingdoms. This is important because in, in some reform circles, our brothers and sisters of the reform faith, I think, sometimes have trouble picturing anything but one people of God. And in fact, they uh, will set up a semantic argument that is not true. Well, do you believe there are two peoples of, peoples of God, that there's Israel and then there's the church and God has two different plans? No, I don't believe there's two peoples of God. There's one people of God with lots of variety and lots of distinctions. There is Israel and there, there's the Gentile church. And this is made very clear because while the book of Daniel has a definite Israel flavor to it, it also concerns itself greatly with the future of Gentile kingdoms. And this is important because God is in the middle of that. What's the end game for this? Why is this important? Well, we always go all the way back to the end of the Bible um, in Revelation 21, where we see, uh, Revelation 22 rather, we see the nations mentioned again. You compare that to Zechariah 14 and you have the nations bringing all of their glory, meaning, meaning all of the wondrous things that they produce. Um, you know, German sausages, I don't know, and whatever's made in Bavaria, chocolate, I don't know. All the wonderful things bringing them to God to glorify him that, that the distinctive variety he's given the nations was always his plan. Um, People have said, well, nations were formed uh, at the Tower of Babel, and that's a sinful thing. No, they were not formed at the Tower of Babel. The differences in languages were formed at the Tower of Babel. Nations were formed before the Garden of Eden or at the Garden of Eden. It is not the garden which is called Eden. It is the garden in the nation called Eden. And there are other nations mentioned even in Genesis 2. So it was always God's intention to have nations on the earth glorifying God with a head nation, Israel, that's sort of the capital nation. That's always been his intention. And so, of course, the book of Daniel, which is prophetic in nature, is going to concern itself with Gentile nations. There's a progression of Gentile nations. So what we see here is that the restoration of Israel is still a long ways away. God's going to deal with the Gentiles first. Interesting to me that the, the Israelites aren't told to live with a sense of imminence, but to live their lives now. They're told uh, in, in Jeremiah 28, build houses, uh, pray for the peace of your nation. And that, those, are, those are good examples for us. We're different, though. We're new covenant believers. There, is no, there are no more signs we're waiting for before the rapture of the church. So different than the Uh, the Israelite living in Babylon who is told just settle in and be here. You have a long ways to wait. We're told to live with a sense of expectancy. In the New Testament, we have this sense of uh, that Christ could return any day. My dad, before he died, he genuinely believed that he was going to be part of the rapture. And that was just pure emotion and and maybe a, a little bit of mysticism on his part. But he lived his life with a sense of imminence. I mean, he got up every day and sometimes, uh, you know, we would talk early in the mornings and he would say, I hope this is the day. And he, like, it was a big deal to him. I think that's a great way to live, isn't it? To live as if uh, the return of Christ is imminent. 
But for the Israelite living in Babylon, God didn't say that. He said, settle in. You're going to be here for a while. Most of you are going to die here, in fact. So you settle in and you look to a, a future that's farther away. Then you have the theme of the pride of Gentile kings. Chapters 2 through 5, 7 and 8, chapter 11. Um, and here's the irony, and we see this all throughout uh, biblical history. These are kingdoms raised up by God. Step one. Step two, the kings take credit for all their greatness, and they become overly prideful. Step three, the kings then want the people to pander to them and even worship them. Step four, God crushes them. That's kind of the, the, the historical pattern here. And so God lets this only go so far. Uh, for example, uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue of gold. And even though, even though he's shown by Daniel to only be the head of gold, he makes a statue that says, I'm the whole thing. Daniel chapter 2, he's shown that he's the head uh, of gold. Daniel chapter 3, he makes a whole statue says, this is me. I'm everything. I'm all the kingdoms. So you have the pride of the Gentile kings. And, and I think one of the most um, interesting ways that uh, God demotes a king for a period of time is when he turns Nebuchadnezzar basically into a cow for a while uh, to have him go and eat grass and, and um, have his hair grow long and his nails grow out like claws for seven years just to show who's really in charge. I think that's a good chapter for all of us to read once a year every time we think that we're in charge of our lives. Um, then you have a final theme, the ultimate establishment of God's kingdom. And we'll get to that here in a minute. Chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 12. This is where it ties in with the book of Revelation. I'd add chapter 9 in here as well. What's the purpose of the book? The purpose is to the, the sweep of human history during Gentile domination until the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth is presented. So there's a, a huge historical uh, uh, broad sweeping presentation here. Human history going from the time of da Daniel himself all the way until the end of all things. Um, and so that's, that's fairly comprehensive. Uh, so I heard, I, I read a blog the other day that said that, uh, said, beware of preaching end times in the church. It's not that important. Really? Like a third of the Bible says it's important. The book of Daniel, if you told Daniel, well, don't preach end times. It's not that important. He would say, that was my whole ministry. That was everything I'm about. Literary structure. This is interesting. It's, it's unique in all of the Old Testament in that the language used reflects the theme of the section. What do I mean by that? Chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and it speaks of the godly remnant of Israel. Chapters 2 through chapter 7 is in Aramaic, which is a Gentile language. That's the prophetic course of Gentile uh, dominion. And so those, those are written in the Gentile language. Why? So the Gentiles can understand it. And then chapter 8 to the end is written in Hebrew, because again, now we're returning to the prophetic course of Israel during Gentile dominion. So... The book of Daniel itself is an illustration of how God is going to mix the, mix the peoples of the earth uh, in distinctive ways. Now, I want to just show you a little chart because in the, in the book of Daniel, you get all of these um, word pictures. And I want to show you how they go together. And we'll make this available online. I don't know if you'll be able to reproduce this in your notes right now. But um, 
if you look right in this sort of semi-center column here, uh, these nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, revived Rome, are spoken of in three other places, either fully or partially. Chapter 2, Babylon is the head of gold in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Medo-Persia, the breast and arms of silver. Um, Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze. Uh, Rome, the legs of iron. And a revived Roman Empire, we talked about this uh, two Sundays ago, the feet of iron and clay mixed. Chapter 7, you have the, the animal pictures, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the, the dreadful with iron teeth, and then the ten horns. So those correspond exactly to the same vision in chapter 2. And then chapter 8 is not comprehensive. You have the ram, which is Medo-Persia, and the goat, which is Greece. But that's a, that's a useful little chart to help us understand that these aren't a, a whole bunch of different things that are being talked about. It's the same thing being repeated over and over again. I haven't preached through Daniel at Grace Bible Church. I, I have uh, elsewhere in our little church in Texas. Um, and when I preached at the time, I did not go chapter by chapter through the book. I went chronologically. And so we did uh, chapter 2, 7, and 8 kind of all as a chunk because they, they fit together. So if we ever get to do that, that's probably how I would do it. So some of the most important things about Daniel really turn out to be kind of the interpretive issues. So we're going to spend the rest of our time on some interpretive issues. Um, the first one is, is easy, then they get a little bit tougher. And if we have some time, um, I want to go back to a couple of things that we looked at two Sundays ago and look at the 70 weeks of Daniel. So we'll, we'll uh, get to that here in a minute if we can. First interpretive issue, was Nebuchadnezzar saved? Was he converted to full worship of Yahweh alone? Because uh, he says in chapter 4, at the end of days, at the end of the days, after he was turned into basically an ox or a cow for a while uh, to, to live like one, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's a pretty strong statement of loyalty to the one true living God, I would think, especially after, I, I wonder what he thought about his uh, building that big golden statue. I wonder if he looked back and said, wow, that was really dumb. That was really silly. The historical record, by the way, the ancient records of Babylon say that Nebuchadnezzar, for a period of seven years, was sick and had to go away for treatments. That's how they covered up the whole, you know, what's he doing now? He's eating grass in the garden. I can't believe this. So let's look at the facts, though. There's no statement ever that Nebuchadnezzar makes of serving God alone. This is probably more a statement of God that, I, that has humbled me is one of all the gods I believe in. He's just the biggest one. He's the greatest one. Um, history doesn't record, neither does Daniel record, any wide-scale change in Nebuchadnezzar or in his rulership. Um, 
This is just basically a moment when the earthly powerful are forced to acknowledge the superiority of God. Uh, After this event, there are records in Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar continued building temples and buildings uh, dedicated to other deities. So was Nebuchadnezzar actually saved? I'd like to think so. I think that would be cool. I think it would be glorifying to God. But me thinking something is cool is not a Bible study method. The Bible seems to indicate and history indicates that Nebuchadnezzar uh, didn't mess with God anymore because he knew he was going to lose that battle, but he continued to be a polytheist. So uh, the big answer is, was Nebuchadnezzar saved? I don't know. Scripture doesn't seem to indicate that, but we we hope that's the case. Um, But it is a good lesson to us. It is possible to appear to submit to God and yet not be fully repentant and not be a regenerated believer in God. Uh, in our context, in the New Covenant, to not be a, a fully regenerated believer in Christ. And we have, right now, we have Roman Catholic priests who are defending things publicly that we believe are right and good. God is using them to do that. We have in San Francisco, the, the archbishop there is, is just nailing Nancy Pelosi for immoral actions. That's right and that's good. Does that make him saved? It doesn't. It just means he's being used by God. You have to believe the gospel of Christ to be saved, not do apparently really good things, or even to acknowledge that God is too big for me to take on. That's not an act of salvation. That's an act of self-preservation. So Nebuchadnezzar, after seven years of eating grass and growing his nails out, um, of course he's going to say, okay, God, you win. But there's never a sense of repentance here. That's just what scripture says. I would like to think he's saved. I tend to believe he is. But scripture doesn't prove that at all. So just want to point that out. If you ever hear a sermon that says Nebuchadnezzar is a brother in Christ. I hope so. But I don't know. Now let's get a little bit technical here. Let's do some eschatology. There's there's one of the word pictures in Daniel that is a major, major part of of our understanding of eschatology, and that is the identity of the little horn. The little horn is talked about in chapter 7, chapter 8, um, most, most prominently, and there are two major views. Those who do not hold to a future view of the, of the book of Revelation, who do not hold to uh, all the events that we see uh, that will happen as far as the the great tribulation or the rapture, the great tribulation, then the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom. Those who do not hold to those things generally identify the little horn as an historic figure. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's only talking about him. This little horn, which is clearly a man. We would take the view that Antiochus Epiphanes is a prefigurement of Antichrist, that he is one who represents what Antichrist will eventually be. And so let me kind of walk through this and tell you this story a little bit. Antichrist, chapter 7, prefigured by Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8. When Alexander the Great was in the midst of conquering the known world, the story is told, and I believe it to be historic, that either a rabbi... Or, um, or somebody who else who believes the Bible brought to Alexander the Great the book of Daniel and showed him Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. 
As I was considering, behold, a male goat came across, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, meaning he's very powerful. And the person showing this to Alexander the Great said, this is you. You're, you're in the middle of conquering everything, and you have now come after the other kingdoms. You have come after Babylon, after Medo-Persia, and you're next. And I don't know, history doesn't tell us what the response of Alexander the Great was. He probably thought, well, this guy's a nut job, get him out of here. But he was, he was shown this text. And so that, of course, is how uh, Greece took over the known world. Alexander the Great, the prominent horn, chapter 8, verse 5, came from the west, but with a very small and fast army. He was enraged at the Persians for having defeated the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. He was still mad about this. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8. Well, I didn't ask you to turn there, but chapter 8, verse 6. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. Alexander the Great, mad over the Battle of Marathon, the Battle of Salamis in 481 which is a Greek city near Athens. And very, very quickly, Alexander the Great conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Mesopotamia basically in under 10 years. That was the whole of everything that he did. The Persians couldn't resist him. They were helpless. And Alexander died of malaria and complications from alcoholism at the age of 32. He was cut off at the height of his power. Chapter 8, verse 8 Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So you have the one one, uh, powerful man, the goat. When he's strong, he's cut down, and four are raised up in his place. Well, Alexander had no heirs to succeed him. And so the kingdom was divided several years later among, guess how many generals? Four of them, represented here by the four horns. But the divided, of kingdom, the divided kingdom of Greece, it, it really never had the same uh, power that it enjoyed under Alexander. And so it was divided up. Uh, to Ptolemy was given Egypt and parts of Asia Minor. Cassander was given the territory of Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lysacomus was given Thrace and parts of Asia Minor. And then Seleucus was given the remainder of Alexander's empire, which included Syria, Israel, and Mesopotamia. Now, in chapter 8, verses 23 through 25, um, tells this story that years later, from among one of the four horns, the four kings, those four generals, would arise, Gabriel said, a severe, meaning a stern-faced and cunning king. He's a master of intrigue, a master of deceit. Uh, Verse 25 of chapter 8, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Now all of a sudden, we have, the, we have the overlapping of history and future prophecy. They come together. Now, I'll, I'll prove that in just a minute. But now you have this powerful ruler who's going to devastate property and destroy people to expand his kingdom. Uh, the holy people, the, the nation of Israel, chapter 7, in three different places, says that the people he's going against are called the saints. They would be a special target 
of his oppression. Um, and in subjugating Israel, many would lose their lives just when they thought they were safe. And this is exactly what happened with Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, otherwise known as Epiphanes. And yet, at the same time, we see this overlap. This is exactly what Antichrist will do. We see in Daniel chapter 9 and, of course, in the book of Revelation. So this king, Antiochus Epiphanes, what did he do? Well, he murdered his brother, first of all. His brother had inherited the throne in the Seleucid dynasty. You remember the four dynasties? He had inherited this throne. He came to power in 175 B.C. In 170 B.C., Ptolemy... Uh, the fourth of Egypt, the sixth rather, sought to recover the territory that was ruled by Antiochus. So there's this war about to happen between the former Greeks and now the Egyptians. This was his growth, verse 9, in the power of the south. And on his return from this conquest, trouble broke out in Jerusalem, so he decided to subdue Jerusalem, called the beautiful land in chapter 7, chapter 8. So now Antiochus Epiphanes did what is horrifying to the Jews. Not only did he subjugate Jerusalem, he desecrated the temple. He sacrificed pigs in the temple and he set himself up as the God to be worshipped. Exactly, not the sacrificing the pigs part, but setting himself up exactly what Jesus predicted will happen with Antichrist because he quoted Daniel. Daniel called it the abomination of desolation. That is when Antichrist does what Antiochus Epiphanes formerly did. So, it, it speaks to the complexity of prophecy, doesn't it? Well, after this conquest, Antiochus returned to Egypt in 168, but he was forced by Rome now to evacuate Egypt because he had taken over for a while. On his return, he decided that he needed a buffer between himself and Egypt. He needed a land that was so subject to him that it would be like a buffer zone, and he chose Israel. He attacked Israel, he burned Israel, he killed multitudes, he forbid the Jews from following the Mosaic law, they couldn't observe Sabbath, they couldn't observe the feasts, they couldn't do any sacrifices, they couldn't even circumcise their boys. Altars to idols were set up in Jerusalem, and on December 16th, 167 BC, the Jews were ordered to offer unclean sacrifices and to eat the flesh of pigs or be penalized by death. The Jews called Antiochus Epiphanes the madman. Of course he's the madman. And that's what started what we call the Maccabean revolt, which is what happened in the time between the Testaments. So, is the little horn just Antiochus Epiphanes? Wrong question. Is the little horn Antiochus Epiphanes? Yes. Is the little horn also Antichrist? Yes. Absolutely. Now, um, does that mean we're trying to make it mean two things? Well, I want to show you in just a minute that there is such a precedent for uh, not only gaps in prophecy, but overlapping prophecies, a telescopic view of prophecy. Uh, put it this way. Have you ever been driving? And you, you look down, it's, it's flat, and you see a little, a little row of hills in front of you. You think, oh, isn't that nice? And as you get closer, you realize that the little row of hills was actually a little row of hills that was covering up a giant mountain range that you couldn't see behind it because it was, it was 
covered by the shadow or or because it's farther away it looked small as you get closer to the little hill you realize that it's really is giant set of mountains that's exactly how old testament prophecy works very often in fact we'll see this here i want to just walk through and i know we did this two weeks ago but this is god's sovereignty we're going to do it again uh what are the 70 weeks of daniel if i can get there we go what are the 70 weeks this is interesting. It's controversial. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. In fact, we have a moment. I'll just read that passage. Daniel 9, 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a covenant with make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator i don't have time to go through every little nuance there i wish i did but what is the 70 weeks in hebrew 70 weeks it just says 77s and this is universally accepted by by Hebrew scholars to mean 77s of years, 490 years. Verse 25, we get an exact date. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. What is that date? Well, from that date, you have 69, 62 plus 7, 69 weeks. After that, the anointed one shall have nothing. Who is the anointed one? The date spoken of in verse 25 is either 444 or 445 BC. We know this exactly depending on how you calculate it. And you end up at at the end of the 69 weeks somewhere between 27 and 32 AD. What is that? That is the crucifixion of Christ. Now the reason there's a disparagement of four or five years there is because a Jewish calendar is 360 days and so we count a little bit differently and you have to account for that. So the 70 weeks of years, you take, you get it all the way to the end of the 69 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. That is Christ. Verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the prince, uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, we talked about this two weeks ago. The people of the prince who is to come, revived Roman Empire, uh, th- those are the people that will destroy the sanctuary. They did do that in 70 AD. So that is an historic fact that happened back then. But at that point, now we come to a gap. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And we, we did all that two weeks ago. This is Antichrist making covenant with nations, particularly with Israel. At the end of three and a half years, he breaks covenant, and he uh, goes back on all of his word. And so this is what some have called the gap view. 
Not to, be, not to be confused with the gap view of creation, which is false, faulty and heretical. That's a whole different view. This is a gap view of this particular prophecy. And you might say, well, wait, you can't just decide there's a gap there. Well, you can, because there are other precedents. And I told you this a minute ago, that sometimes something means the same thing twice or means uh, two different things that come together in a final uh, product or in a final fulfillment. Here's a couple of gaps. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Merry Christmas. And the government shall be upon the shoulder. That hasn't happened yet. What is that? That's a gap. There's a gap right there. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. There's, that's not, that hasn't happened yet. I, I told you last time or a couple of times ago about Jesus coming to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. And he stood up and he read from the scroll of Isaiah, which is amazing to me that there were no chapter or verse headings and he just knew where to go. And he read from what we know as Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus said, today that is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here. But in Hebrew, he literally stopped in the middle of a sentence. And he gave the scroll back and he quit reading. Why is that? Here's the full text. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor from Isaiah 61. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stopped here, mid-sentence in Hebrew. If you keep going, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And he goes on to describe the rebuilding and the restoration of the nation of Israel. Hasn't happened yet. Jesus stopped mid-sentence. One prophecy describing two different events. So there's clear precedence for this. And the easiest one for us to understand, Zechariah 9, verse 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we say, Happy Easter, right? Happy Resurrection Sunday. This is, uh, this is the week before uh, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But he keeps going Right after that, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That is the full on reign of Christ on earth. It stops right in the middle. One prophecy referring to two events. One first, one later. So for us to say in Daniel 9 that the 70 weeks... Uh, begins and then there's a gap and then it ends the great tribulation we talked about that two weeks ago total precedence for that for us to say the little horn Antiochus Epiphanes absolute history yes but Antichrist absolutely yet coming in the future now you might say boy this is this is like prophecy nerdism like I've never heard before why is this so important it's important because we must accurately read prophecy that is fulfilled already and prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. 
Because if we don't do that accurately, then you begin to um, think that the church age and the church is kind of the center of God's plan. We are an important part of God's plan. We are not the center. Is it, did you catch that? We're an important part, but not the center. So we have to let Scripture speak for itself. And we talked about this two weeks ago, but just to review, there's a, a major time importance uh, between the two, three and a half year periods, 1260 days on a Jewish calendar. Uh, Revelation 11.3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Revelation 12.6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is, also the, she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Both of those are the second 1,260 days, and we said that last time. You see how the book of Daniel helps you understand Revelation. You, you have to have it. Now, I want to do one last thing. Just very simply, and we mentioned this briefly two weeks ago, but I think it's worth noting. If you have your Bible, turn to Daniel 12. Because one question that gets asked, especially by those who have more of an amillennial view of the end times, amillennialism just basically says uh, everything comes to a head all at once. And that's fine. Uh, The drawing a, a time chart for amillennialism is very easy. Here's now. Here's time, and then everything happens at once. And that's kind of the end of, of everything. Christ returns, resurrections happen, and all of that. And one of, the, one of the things that they would point to us, and they would say is that, well, um, the resurrection happens all at once. Well, that's not what the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 4 clearly points to a rapture, harpazo, being caught up, and a resurrection event all be happening at the same time. That the believers who are left on earth alive will be caught up bodily, physically, at the same time that all the believers of the church of Jesus Christ who have died since Pentecost are also resurrected. That's not when the Old Testament saints are resurrected, apparently. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So let's stop right there for a moment. A time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Uh, It used to be said that World War II spoke of that time. Everybody wants to point back in history at the worst time they can can find. Um, That's not even the worst time that Jews have had. Jews have had worse than that. Uh, considering ratios of populations, A.D. 70, a million Jews were killed, 60,000 of them enslaved, compared to how many Jews there were in the world. That was, that was devastating. That's probably at least half the population. So the time of trouble hasn't happened yet. That is the Great Tribulation. And what happens after that time of trouble? Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What does this tell us? It tells us that all, both lost and saved, will be resurrected. Those who were not part of the church age will be resurrected. The lost resurrected to face judgment in the resurrected body. The saved to face and receive their eternal reward. And this is speaking specifically of Jews, most likely. So it's just a little interesting note there. We can't decide to try to simplify eschatology because it makes us feel better or because it's complex. 
Um, you know what us dispensationalists are famous for? We love charts because it's complex. And so we like to draw charts and, and here's timelines and things, things like that. So when will the Old Testament saints be resurrected? Apparently when Christ returns at the end of the seven-year uh, tribulation. And we talked about this two Sundays ago, but what happens in heaven during the Great Tribulation? The marriage supper of the Lamb, which seems to be specific to the church, the bride of Christ. So that's happening. Then Israel gets restored after that. And everything eventually, what happens, all the people of God from all the ages placed in the New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem comes down to the, to the New Earth. And now probably the distinctions are less important, even though New Jerusalem definitely uh, has a Jewish flavor to it um, all over the place. So, Book of Daniel. I would encourage you to read it with a notebook and a pen and some charts and some commentaries to help you walk your way through it because it is just fascinating. If it sounds confusing in the last 45 minutes, it is. But God is not a God who just says, I'm a kindergarten level God. He's the God of the universe. And this is the simplified version. So we want to study that. I wish I had time to take questions, but I pretty much told you everything I know about Daniel anyway. So we'll pray. And if you want to email me other questions, that's fine as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had. Uh, the, the thing I really want to take away from Daniel today, Lord, is just remembering that you are sovereign, remembering that you are over all the nations, even our nation, which just seems to be destroying itself from the inside right now. And so, Lord, we fall on your mercy. We fall on your sovereignty. You have told us to be good citizens. You have told us to live righteously wherever we are. And I pray that we as the church of Jesus Christ could be an influence for the gospel in this nation which has become more and more godless. Lord, it seems like there is no hope anymore that we have been turned over to judgment as a nation like so many in the book of Daniel. And so we ask for your mercy and we look forward to a day when you will remove your remnant, when you will bring us out and we will be on an earth filled with righteousness and goodness because of the kingship of our present Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a complex topic. I really appreciate it.